All right, this morning we continue to follow along in John 20 with the resurrection, and we continue to be on the first day of the, the new epoch in humanity, the first evening, I suppose we could say, in this section uh, that I'll be reading for us. Uh, just so you know my plan for preaching, I have this Sunday when we'll look at the section uh, 19 through 23, and then I have next Sunday as well, and my intention next Sunday will be to look at the end of John 20, and then we're going to call that a wrap on uh, the Gospel of John. I know that over the course of the years that I've been here, I've actually preached on all of John 20 and 21 at various points, so I think uh, this will be a fine place to end as we come to the end of uh, chapter 20 next week. Uh, this morning, remember as I read this portion of the Word of God for us that it is, in fact, living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, and so as I read it, and even as I explain it for us this morning, may the Lord take it and use it in our lives to pierce us and to help us to see the gospel and to see our own lives in light of it as well. This is the living word of God beginning this morning at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Lord Jesus, Thank you for each of your appearances to your people. Thank you for this first appearance, this Easter evening. And thank you for all of the words that you spoke. And now we pray that indeed, as is promised, the Spirit would take the words, the living and active words, and would penetrate our hearts, sending them deep into us to do their perfect work. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. I don't think that it is possible for us to imagine fully what was going on in the hearts and the minds of the disciples on this first Easter evening. I suspect that it was some combination of things. Certainly, it had an element of fear to it, right? We read that in the text that is before us, that the doors were locked for fear of the Jews. So there was fear. I'm sure there was confusion and some skepticism as well, because, right, we know that Thomas isn't there, and he's going to be skeptical about it. We'll look at him next week and his, his skepticism. But surely there must have been, perhaps, in, in addition to the skepticism, I, I, I hope that there was also some hope, right? Some anticipation that was there, because by this point, 
they have received the testimony from Mary Magdalene that she had seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. And we read back in the section that we looked at last week that John himself had come to believe at that point. And so hopefully there was hope amidst the conversations that were going on at this moment as well. I imagine that if I were there and if I were thinking about this evening, there might also be some guilt, right? When we think about the guilt that may have been amongst them this evening, we naturally and appropriately think in the first place of Peter, who had denied his Lord three times. But we certainly don't need to restrict it to Peter. Because in one sense, we read in the other Gospels that at the time of the arrest of Jesus, all of the disciples fled. Jesus had predicted that it would take place. The striking of the shepherd would cause the sheep to scatter, and so, so it had taken place. So there might have been some guilt amongst all of them this evening, thinking, you know, they could have been stronger. They could have perhaps been a little bit more courageous when the moment came. They could have stood firmer in their faith at this critical time in the life of their Lord, the one whom they loved. And I suppose that of the many questions that occupied their minds this evening, one of them was surely, what do we do now? What are we supposed to do now, given all of the things that we are hearing from the people around us. And in the midst of those thoughts, of those intense feelings that were surely there, of the conversations that were taking place, and I'm sure as well of the recriminations that were going on amongst the 12 in that particular evening, Jesus came and stood among them. And I just think about what a moment that that must have been. One minute, you're there together, and you're talking about Jesus, right? You're, you're trying to figure out things. What has happened here? This person said that. This person saw that. What's going on? Can anybody remember anything that Jesus said about this? And the next minute, there's Jesus, right standing in your midst. Here he is, the first appearance to his disciples. Now, the appearance... I suppose in and of itself would have been life-changing for them. But of course, Jesus speaks as well. He is the eternal word of God. He is the great prophet, and he speaks to his disciples on this evening. And I'm going to consider today his speaking to them in four parts that kind of just lay really nicely along with the text here. He speaks to them four things, peace, of commission, of power and of authority. Okay, he gives them his peace, he gives them a commission, he gives them power to do it, he gives them authority to do it. That's kind of the substance of our text today. So you ask yourself the question, what will be the first word from the risen Lord? What is the very first thing that the Prince of Peace is going to say to the disciples upon his resurrection, and it is exactly what you'd hope for. Exactly what you would hope for. Shalom Aleichem. Peace be with you, brothers. Peace be yours. 
In one sense, it is the standard greeting. Even now, it's the standard Jewish greeting. But there is nothing standard, there is nothing normal about this evening and this night and this greeting at this particular time. And so he repeats it. You know, they have the time of processing who this is, what's going on here. He shows them his hands and his sides. They recognize that it's the Lord. And he says it again, peace be with you. And then if we look down one more section to the second appearance uh, that's recorded for us, the one with Thomas again, when he stands in their midst, he says the same thing again, peace be with you. Now think about this. We spent a lot of time over the past year in John 14 through 16, which is good. It's time well spent in those great chapters. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. That's John 14, uh, 27. And this great long discourse ends with a verse that all of us know uh, so well, John 16, 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus had promised to them peace, his peace. On the cross, he purchased it. He purchased the peace that he had promised, and now, this first Easter evening, he comes to them and he provides the peace that he has promised to them. He speaks, the gentle, scarred Lord of heaven and earth speaks words that comfort, peace be with you, words that douse the flames of fears, peace be with you, words that soothe the guilty conscience, peace be with you, words that quiet arguments that may have been going on to that point. Jesus says, peace be with you. Words that, of course, transform, as we read in our text, along with his appearance. Words that transform sad hearts into glad hearts. Their hearts were glad when they saw the Lord. Peace be with you. Now, these words of Christ, this shalom that Jesus is greeting them with and is putting upon them is accomplishing multiple things at the same time. I'd just like to highlight the way it's doing two things at the same time. In the first place, these words are for them. These men are afraid. These men feel guilty. These men are no doubt in contest with one another about what has happened and what is going on. They need this peace of which Jesus is speaking here. They need to know about it. They need to have it themselves, the peace that can exist with God and the peace that can exist with your fellow brothers and sisters on this earth. They need this peace, and these words are for them. Peace be with you. But in context, in context of this particular passage, these are also 
foundational words, not only for what God wants to do and give for them or to them, but what God wants to do, what Jesus wants to do through them. Through them, Jesus wants to extend peace. In one sense, it's as if Jesus is saying, go in peace, the peace in which I, that I have given to you, and extend peace out into the world. That's the ministry that you have. Peace is in no small measure than the content of their mission. Remember the words of Isaiah, words that we uh, use oftentimes at, at Christmas in Isaiah chapter 9. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end. We don't always think of those things as necessarily going together, government and of peace, but both government and peace are central in our passage today. And the promise is the increase of peace. The angels at his birth then, of course, sang of peace on earth. Isaiah said words that we know well, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. And, and that's kind of the, the setup. That's kind of the, the, the setup to lead to our second word. The second word that I've used this time is commission. The commission that Jesus gives to them. The word commission is, of course, not in our text, but the commissioning is in our text. Verse 21, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Uh, I'll tell you a story about ministers, pastors, ministers of the gospel. Every minister of the gospel goes through stages. And all of the multiple men right now in front of me who are uh, studying for the ministry have gone through or are in the midst of some combination of these stages. At some point in your life, you begin to ask yourself a question. Am I sensing that God is calling me into the ministry when I have opportunities to lead in worship or to uh, perhaps lead a Bible study or teach in some way? Are people affirming that, hey, perhaps you've got a call, perhaps this is a gifting from the Lord and the Lord would like you to serve in ministry? And you start asking yourselves questions about that. And you talk to various people and you think about, you know, should I go to seminary or should I not go to seminary? Should I come under the care of presbytery? What does even that mean? What is coming under care of presbytery? Should I be mentored? How can I gain experience? Do I need to pass exams? When should I become licensed by the presbytery so that I can preach within the geographic area? Should I seek ordination? Will I receive a call to a particular church or to a particular work? Will I be installed? When will I be installed into that work? You know how long that took in my life? That was about 15 years. That was about 15 years. Now, these men have been with Jesus for three years. And of course, though theirs isn't exactly what I described, it has been a process for them as well, from the time when they were initially called by Jesus to the experiences that Jesus had given them along the way of sending them out in groups of two at various points and giving them ministry to do along the way to this moment now. And what we might say about this particular moment for the disciples is that this is the moment when it becomes official for them. 
Jesus prayed for this. They, he prayed for this very moment for them. Back in John chapter 17, he said, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And now we see, the, if you will, the answer, the confirmation of that prayer. This is that for which Jesus was praying. That these men would go out as the ones who were sent by Jesus as he was sent by his father. Calvin uses words like uh, to describe this passage saying that they were installed here. They became ordained ambassadors or that this was the authoritative ratification of their ministry that took place at this moment when Jesus says that to them. They're sent. They're sent as was Abraham in the passage that we read earlier, as was Israel. Israel, too, given the mission to be a light amongst the nations, and of course, as was Jesus. And if you ask, well, what were they sent? Think here of the words of the hymn, to, to publish glad tidings, tidings of peace, tidings of Jesus' redemption and release. On the front of your bulletins, I put uh, a couple of verses, John 3, 16 and 17, John 3, 16, of course, you know, John 3, 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. As Jesus was sent into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved, so these men are sent into the world, as grand as it sounds, to save it, or at least to herald it, to proclaim the good news of the salvation. And of course, it becomes a gospel that is thus not only for them themselves, but a gospel that goes from them as well. It's true for them, and it's also true for us. As I've tried to make clear over the course of the weeks, we have to make a distinction. They are the apostles called to be those who found the church. And yet, our ministry as a church, what we're called to be and to do as a church, is in no small measure connected to them as well. Peter makes this point, the other verse that's uh, well known and on the front of your bulletins also. Peter taking words that are applied to Israel and now not just applying them to himself as an apostle, but applying them to you, to the church. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The apostles were called to a ministry of proclamation, like their Lord. And the church is called to a ministry of proclamation. Peter takes it right to the next step. And he takes the ministry that was entrusted to him, and he says to the church, it is your ministry as well to do exactly that. Now, I need to clarify one point at this point. It's a good clarification even here, but it will be helpful to us in just a moment. When Jesus makes the statement, as the Father has sent me, we need to appreciate at this moment uh, the uniqueness of the person and the work that belonged to Jesus, the uniqueness of it. The disciples were not to be substitutes for Jesus. They weren't replacement Jesuses. You know, Jesus is gone, and now we've got these guys. They're filling in the gap, kind of the, uh, the modern-day statement of next man up. 
you know, well, he's, he's gone, he's off the scene, you guys now are that. Uh, Calvin says this well, and he says it illustratively, for example, that the disciples don't have entrusted to them the work of making atonement for sins or of procuring justification. Jesus is unique. Their calling, that is the disciples' calling, is to proclaim and to preach what Jesus has done, to bless and to do good in this world as sent ones like Jesus. And so the, the point is kind of simple, but you'll, you'll see why it's particularly important in, in just a moment. The idea here is we want to preserve the distinction that exists between Jesus and the disciples, as well as the similarity that exists within their commission. We want to keep both of those things. But now, imagine this. Imagine you're in the room. Imagine you're there, and Jesus has said to you, as the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. Now, let me ask you this question. What do you feel at that moment? What do you feel right then when Jesus looks you in the eye and says that to you? I am sending you in that way. Now, perhaps at that moment you feel motivated. Perhaps at that moment you feel uh, honored and somewhat humbled at the moment. But there's something else that you feel as well. And every servant of the Lord bears testimony to this. You feel the absolute reality of your inadequacy for the task. Wait, I'm sent like you? <laughs> I'm, I'm sent into the world like you were sent into the world? I don't think I need to quote it, and I'm not going to quote uh, any of them this morning. But all you need to do is just reflect a little bit. Think about Moses. Think about David. Think about Isaiah. Think about Jeremiah. Think about the Apostle Paul. All of them are men who express their keen aware, awareness of not just the feeling of their inadequacy. It's one thing to feel inadequate uh, for something. Lots of us feel inadequates at various points in time, whether we sh should feel that way or shouldn't feel that way. It's not just their feeling of inadequacy. It is the reality of their inadequacy that is being shown to them, that is revealed to them in a moment like this when Jesus says something like that, and into that inadequacy. Okay, so there's the, there's the commission, and then there's this profound sense of, there's no way I can do what you just told me was my responsibility to do, comes verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. In one breath, the commission is given. In the next breath, the power for the commission is given to them. Here we have both symbolism and promised deliverance of the life-giving, life-changing power of the Holy Spirit. Now, with respect to the symbolism here today, we have this act of breathing. Uh, I do want to say for us that the words on them so if you look at your text, uh, your ESV, it says he breathed on them. On them is actually not in the text. He breathed. It was a symbolic act. 
it's, it's not quite the way we can say it, a deep breath. It, it is a symbolism that he does at that particular moment. And D.A. Carson calls it uh, an acted parable, kind of like the, the foot washing. It's something that actually takes place, but it's, it's illustrating something else. It's illustrating love and it's illustrating cleansing at the same time. This is an acted parable. Jesus isn't literally at this moment blowing out the Holy Spirit out of himself onto them in this particular instance. Instead, he's symbolizing the nature and life of the Spirit in wind and in breath. And it's not only here in Scripture. He's, it, he's just drawing from the entire tradition of Scripture that takes us to this point because that's exactly the way we started. Genesis 2-7 says it this way. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And I'll just add, and immediately after that, he was given a commission. Immediately after that, the man, having become a living creature with the breath of God, was given a commission, a mandate of what he was to do in this world. In the Isaiah 42 passage that we read uh, earlier in the service, uh, thus says the Lord God, and it's going to tap right back into creation, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I'm the Lord. I've called you in righteousness, and I've appointed you. I've appointed you to be a covenant to the nation, a light to the peoples, to declare these things out into the world. You hear the parallels there, the, what, what Jesus is drawing upon at this moment, and just one other one, just to, to reinforce the idea that he's drawing on here. Think of Ezekiel 37. Think of the valley of the dry bones, and I could read any number of verses from it. I'll read verse 10. Ezekiel, so I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, that is, into the bones, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. The Spirit brings life, the Spirit brings salvation, and the Spirit of God empowers for a commissioned life, a sent life, an apostolic life. The Spirit of God is thus essential for the mission of the church. Every single one of us, whatever our gifts are, whatever our callings are, uh, whether we have a small part in the kingdom of God or a significant part in the kingdom of God makes no different. The difference, the calling that belongs to us is one that requires the anointing, the power, the clothing of the Holy Spirit. Of course, Jesus promised peace in chapters 14 through 16, but the other thing that he promised prominently in 14 through 16 is he promised his spirit to be with these men and with the church. And he linked the ministry of the Spirit to the ministry that was given to these men. The last two verses of John 15. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And here Jesus inaugurates this. He inaugurates this giving of the Spirit unto the disciples specifically with reference to the expansion of the gospel. 
the enlargement of the kingdom of God through their mission. In themselves and in ourselves, we are indeed inadequate for such things. We are unworthy of such things. But in the Spirit, clothed with power, the church bears witness to the gospel through the power of the Spirit of God. And then that brings us to the very last verse that we have before us in this text. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So not only here are the disciples given a commission from the Lord and the empowerment to do that commission, here in this verse they are given the authority to do that which Jesus is telling them to do. If we were uh, to go back to the Gospel of Matthew, uh, we could align this with passages that talk about the keys of the kingdom being entrusted to the disciples. This moment, then, marks a shift in the office of human authority with respect to the kingdom of God. Earlier, I quoted for us the passage from Isaiah. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end. The peace has been promised. The peace will be proclaimed. The Spirit of God will give the peace. And here, the government in which the peace will be ministered to by the people to the people is being established for us. This is the establishment of the government that will increase over all of the earth. Think of it. Until this point, if you ask the question, well, where's the authority in the kingdom of God, humanly speaking? Where's the authority rest for the kingdom of God? What would have been the answer? Well, the answer would have been in some combination of the Pharisees, of the scribes, of the Sadducees, of the priests, and of the various councils of the Sanhedrin that were gathered together. That's where, if you will, the official authority for the kingdom of God is lodged in those people, in those councils. Now, if you went back a little bit more in the Old Testament, as we've been recently, of course, we'd have seen that the authority was given to kings, right? Kings, to prophets, go back a little bit farther, to judges who ruled over the people, go back a little bit before that, to the elders who were appointed by Moses to rule over the people, go back a little bit before that, to the patriarchs. And that's kind of the, the story of the progress of the government, humanly speaking, of the kingdom of God. And one can easily imagine the questions that these men or others might have as to the legitimacy of their establishment of the church. The question would have been, and, and we can get this, who are you? Who, who made you to be in this position right here? Who gave you this authority? Who gave you this right? Who legitimized what you're doing in saying that Jesus has come, he's the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, and we're inaugurating the age in which the Gentiles are a part and parcel of this people of God? Who gives you that right? And the answer from Jesus and the statement that comes to them and then comes to all of the early church and to us as well is, I gave them the authority. I gave it to them. And this is it. This is the place right here where I give them the authority, the keys of the kingdom. 
This is a new kingdom government. If you'd like, a new church polity is being established here. Jesus is legitimizing their role. But when we read it, or as I have read it for you, we might easily read that verse and think, isn't there kind of an overreach here? Isn't this kind of an overstatement that Jesus makes with respect to the forgiveness or the not forgiveness of sins, entrusting that to these men? Uh, and we kind of look at this with a little bit of a scratching of our heads. And this is where I want to bring back in what I said earlier in the sermon in terms of how Jesus was sent, that there was both a uniqueness to Jesus and something similar for us, something derivative for us as well. That's the same principle that we need to apply to this more complicated verse here. Jesus isn't giving away his unique authority. Calvin says it this way. While Christ enjoins the apostles to forgive sins, he does not convey to them what is peculiar to himself. It belongs to him to forgive sins. This honor, so far as it belongs peculiarly to himself, he does not surrender to the apostles, but enjoins them in his name to proclaim the forgiveness of sins, that through their agency he may reconcile men to God. In short, properly speaking, it is he alone who forgives sins through his apostles and ministers. And that John, our writer, the one who was there at this particular moment, who heard it, who wrote it down, that he understood it that way is confirmed in the simplicity of the verse that, again, a verse that you know well, and the verse that we used for the promise of forgiveness this morning. 1 John 1, 8 and 9. If we say we have no sins, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, John doesn't say, well, with my apostolic authority, I will forgive you of your sins. If we confess our sins, what does John say? He, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John didn't misunderstand this. John didn't say, well, I guess now the authority belongs to me to absolve people of their sins if they'll just admit their sins. He understood. He understood the difference. What Jesus does and what he as an apostle would do are different things. Indeed, authority is being conveyed, but it is the authority that is founded on the preaching of the word and the discipline of the church. As the apostolic gospel is preached, it becomes a word when it's preached and proclaimed. It becomes a word in which sins are forgiven or sins are retained. It becomes a word of life or a word of death. It becomes an aroma of life or an aroma unto death in terms of how people respond to it. And that's exactly what we see. If you took this passage that is before us and lay it right over top of Acts chapter 2 and the preaching that Peter does at Pentecost, okay, lay, it, lay it right on top of it. Because Peter is taking up the responsibility that exists in this passage, and he is proclaiming unto these men the truth of the gospel, the truth of what Jesus Christ has done for them. And when he gets to the end of it, they say, wow, sir, 
what do we have to do? And his answer is, you need to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. That's this. That's exactly what is done right here. And church discipline is centered exactly in this same place as well. Church discipline is centered in the question of repentance. How do you respond to the preaching of the Word of God, to the, the will of God? Church discipline is simply a calling to repent or a declaration that a person is unrepentant. That's, that's what it is. That's what it's looking for in all of its forms, whether it's an admonition to a person, a suspension from the Lord's Supper or from an office, or even an excommunication. The question is, will you repent of the sin? And if not, by the declaration of the gospel, the sin is not forgiven. That's, that's what's happening. It's, it's a question of repentance, and it's exactly in accord with what is preached and proclaimed by our Lord right here. And that completes the first appearance of the Lord to the disciples. Peace as the foundation, commissioned and sent, and power and authority are given to them. And Thomas wasn't there. Thomas missed the first night. And so we'll join with him and hear more of this together next week. Our great God in heaven, thank you, Jesus, for this work that you have done. And thank you for the way that you equipped uh, these particular disciples who were there to lay the foundations, you being the cornerstone, uh, their ministry and their words being the foundation upon which the church has been built. No other foundation can be laid other than that which has been laid. And so we pray that you would guard us, that you would protect us, that we, we would be a flock who loves your word, who loves the peace that is found in it and proclaimed in it, and that we would be a people who, recognizing the power of the Holy Spirit and the authority that you have entrusted unto us, that we would be a people who embrace the fact that we've been sent into the world, that we've been deployed into this world for the increase of your government and of peace. We pray that you would be pleased to continue exactly that, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, to those